hello, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon when you are listening to this podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I am your host, April Hanna, and you are listening to the Path 11 podcast. And I know if you clicked on this link, you already saw the title, so you are ready to hear a little bit more about death, because the title of this show is It's Okay to Die. So we have some great content coming up in this podcast that I think everybody should hear, especially those who hate talking about death, that want to avoid it and act like it's never going to happen to them. And if you know somebody that feels this way about death and you cannot get them to talk about it, send them this podcast. Keep emailing it to them. Tag them on Facebook. Make sure they listen. This is a podcast for everyone, and I feel like it's mandatory. But before we get there, um, I would like to remind you that you can help sponsor this podcast and continue to keep all the content for free. Mike and I are working hard behind the scenes. I do a ton of reading, a ton of research during the week outside of my other job. Um, So any little bit of support helps us for sure. And you can uh, become a sponsor a couple of different ways, actually. So if you own your own business or you are in the wellness field, the healing field, um, have a product that really benefits people overall with health and wellness, I want to hear about it. Um, And we can work to your budget. You can email me at april at path11productions.com. We have a bunch of different packages in a way that you can become a sponsor to sponsor some of your products or your books out there, maybe your programs, your trainings, your workshops. Um, We love to work with other small businesses. And like I said, we really try to make that affordable because we are all on the same mission, right? We are all just trying to help heal people, raise the level of consciousness on earth, trying to make this place a better place. And I know that there are so many of you out there working hard at this, just like we are. Um, So hopefully it could be a win-win situation for all. And if you have some tight budgets, we have a sponsorship for you, a dollar a month, just a dollar for 30 days, right? Some months there's 31 days. So that is a great bargain. Every little dollar adds up and um, that would be awesome. And if you would like to do that, go to the path11podcast.com, click on the orange button on the right-hand side, and that will bring you to our Patreon page. And if you scroll down, just ignore the meditation supporter for $3 a month and the DVD supporter for five. That dollar a month is sandwiched right in between there. Unfortunately, we don't give you a reward. We just say thank you with a smile. Um, and that just allows you to support us. So if we got even a hundred people, there's a hundred bucks right there, which helps. So again, every dollar counts. So I hope you'll consider doing that because we love bringing all this information out to you guys. So uh, let's get on to our show. And I would like to introduce you to our guest. Today I'm joined with Dr. Monica Williams. She is an award-winning writer and board-certified emergency physician with expertise in death and dying and medical directives. She practices in one of the largest emergency departments in the nation at Huntsville Hospital, where she also serves the community as the medical director for advanced care planning and end-of-life education and has lectured coast-to-coast in the U.S., Additionally, she has served on the board of directors for multiple non-for-profit hospices. 
She is faculty for the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Medicine and is an appointee to the American College of Emergency Physicians End of Life Task Force. Her writing, speaking, and advocacy focuses on empowering patients and families in critical and end-of-life decision-making, and her consulting work centers on the same, although the future direction of her work will incorporate more spiritual elements. The book that we're going to be discussing about today is her book, It's Okay to Die, and companion website are tools for transforming the end of life into a time of peace, closure, and healing. Dr. Williams has appeared in local and national media as a medical expert, including the Emmy Award-winning show, The Doctors, The Washington Post, and her blog has also appeared in the New York Times, Health Around the Web column. Her end-of-life preparation checklists have been adopted by UCLA Center for Integrative Oncology and the UK's NHS campaign, Be Ready For It, endorsed by the Norfolk and Suffolk Palliative Care Academy. In 2013, she was a winner of the National Cost of Care Essay Contest, and we are so, so happy to have Dr. Williams here today. Hi, how you doing? I am great. Thank you, April, for having me. It's a great honor. Yes, I'm I'm really thrilled to have you on the show because you know, death is something and you've really covered it in your book that um it's a kind of a subject that people are afraid to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. Death and dying for most first world countries indeed is certainly taboo. We no longer have it embedded in our daily lives. It's something that we relegate to the medical system where it's supposed to be managed um and this occurs outside of the home. So we're, death is a stranger to us in 2018 in the modern world, and so we don't know what it looks like, we don't know what to expect, and um, we give it to the medical industrial complex to manage, which furthers, um, uh, or decreases rather, our intimacy with it. So we've really lost contact with this m most important phase of life. I tell people, you know, we consider birth holy and sacred, and, and it's a precious time of life. We celebrate it. Is death any less important? I know. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, and so many people sometimes have that reaction of, I don't even want to talk about it. Let's not talk about it right now. You know, I don't even want to think about it. And um, and it's really something, like you say in your book, that everybody needs to come to the point of making peace with the fact that none of us are getting out of here alive. Death is going to come. And why not be prepared for it? Yeah. Death and taxes. You're exactly right. <laughs> well, a friend of mine <laughs> says that uh, the one thing is for sure is death is non-negotiable. <laughs> so as a matter of fact, if you want to live your best life, you should make friends with your death. Really embracing the fact that you're mortal and you have a finite time on the planet allows you to maximize your energy for daily living. And so really, rather than avoidance, perhaps the highest pathway to actually truly living is to face death itself. You know, the Buddhists do this quite well. It's part of their spiritual practice. Yes, absolutely. I do know about that. And, you know, I tend to use, uh, you know, death as one of the best teachers, especially with my clients. You know, when I have people coming in and they're really unhappy about their life and they want to make a change, but they're not quite sure, I usually ask them, well, what has your story been up until now? And if you were to die within the next week, you know, what would your story be and, and what would you tell? And if you had more time here on earth, what would you want to change? So let's say you do live until you're 80, 90 years 
years old, then what does your story look like if you can work through this fear, this anxiety, or things that are trying to hold you back in life? So I think death is one of our best teachers if we're willing to look at it, have a conversation about it, and make meaning within our lives to what that means to us. Oh my gosh, I totally love that. I want to be your client. (laughs) (laughs) That's really so important. And uh, I use that uh, to some extent, you know, I'm, I don't do psychotherapy, but in in many ways I do in the emergency department, I'm often um, the first person to tell someone that they're dying or that their life is limited. And so part of the way that I deliver the news is um, I tell them, all right, so there's bad news and there's good news. I deliver the bad news from our cultural perspective, but the good news is that this remaining time is a gift. And if our lives are a story, you get to consciously write the final chapter. And what a beautiful legacy to pass on to the people that you love. You can mine your life story for uh, the gifts that it contains, where you were a hero and where you were stupid. You know, wisdom arises from those moments. And that needs to be transmitted to the people that we love. That will transform their lives, that level of vulnerability and openness, because death gives us that. There's this emotional and spiritual opportunity that opens when you really know your time is limited. And that opportunity is really hard to get into consciously at any other time of living. And so if we can, in a really awake state, a very conscious state, accept the finality and the mortality aspect, uh, fantastic growth can occur in that phase, not only for the person who's dying, but for all of those who attend the dying, the loved ones, the family, even the community. It's a time of growth and sadness. It's really interesting that joy and sadness can grow on the same vine. Very interesting. Yeah, there's so much to talk about in this book, and I learned so many things, um, and it made me really think about things personally for myself, too, and I've kind of been lagging, even though I'm really comfortable talking about death. I was, I am one of the 70% of Americans that does not have a living will, so I was uh, shocked to read that statistic, and then I laughed, and I said, well, silly, you're one of them, because I just haven't sat down to actually complete that, but um, I kind of wanted to start a little bit from the end of your book because I wanted to let our listeners know that you really do have um, a purpose for writing this book and towards the end it's really more of a call to the nation nation that you're hoping to reduce the suffering among those approaching the end of life Mm -hmm. you'd like to reduce the depression and guilt among surviving family and friends and reduce the federal and state budgets so I wanted to kind of let our listeners know some of the goals that you had in writing this book from the beginning because now when we begin to talk about all that is in uh, this book, It's Okay to Die, that it'll make sense why you came to these three things that you wanted to reduce in society around death. Yeah, thank you, April, for bringing that up. And, and first of all, now that you you realize that you're falling into this statistic, I'll check back with you tomorrow because I'm sure you will have done your advanced directive, right? <laughs> yes, I have been on your website. I have been on the checklist and I have been going through them. And, you know, I think a part of me, um, you know, it's like, I don't have children. I'm not married. You know, I'm single, don't have a ton of money that's going to go out to anybody when I die. So I, I kind of always in the back of my head thought, well, geez, when I die, it'll just be pretty easy for my family to clean up, but never really, you know, giving consideration of all these decisions that they would have to make. And, um, 
a couple of years ago, just a personal story. My dad was really sick for a while and we didn't know what was going on with him. And he really got all of everything in order. I took a trip out to Arizona and we just had a great discussion about what his wishes were. Um, you know, if he wanted to be cremated or buried, we talked about the music that he wanted to be playing. He wanted a little bit of Bob Marley and Jimi Hendrix. Um, you know, he, uh, he showed me the folder where everything was. He had all of the arrangements, um, set up to be buried in the military part of the cemetery. So I left that trip saying, God, thank God. I know we had this conversation and, um, I'm not fearful when and that time comes for him because he has taken care of everything. Huge weight off of my shoulders because I'm also an only child. So that is very, very helpful for me and uh, was just a great conversation to have that many times people and families are not having that discussion. Oh, my gosh. And you said, thank God. I just want to reiterate that because that is a profound gift your father gave you. You know, oftentimes children um, of older adults do not want to have this conversation. They think it's wrong even to talk about it. But I tell the older adults who are trying to pressure their children into the talk, and I go, you know, they don't want to hear it now, but when the time comes where they need this information, they will think this is probably one of the most profound gifts you've ever given them. And so we must prepare ourselves and the people we love. And so uh, kudos to your dad. <laughs> I want to be your uh, patient and I want to be your dad's <laughs> friend. You guys are <laughs> along the right pathway. Because most of my focus really honestly is emotional, physical, medical, spiritual preparation for the end of life. I do mention financial goals at the end there, and I just want to meet that head on, and then we don't have to talk about that in any detail. You know, we've this very sensitive talking about money and death. We certainly don't want to course anyone into any pathway, and we want every American in the American way to have the opportunity to make their own end of life decisions. But here's what we're very clear about on a cultural level and um, a policy level. We've reached the time in human history and uh, policy and finance that we can no longer divorce financial costs from healthcare decisions. And so I'm not saying, and certainly I don't want a government entity to necessarily make my own healthcare decisions for me toward the end of life. But what we found is that if people honestly prepare for themselves, they tend to, on average, choose less aggressive pathways that have a decreased financial burden for them and their families. And so really, this is another opportunity to create peace across the spectrum, not only personally, but financially as well for the family. And there are lots of statistics out there that says essentially that every American is one medical catastrophe away from bankruptcy. And certainly as we leave this life, we want to leave gifts and legacies to our family. We don't want to leave a, a financial burden. And so that's something to take into consideration as a motivating factor for having this talk. So that's probably about all I want to say about money, because I think the real gifts exist in the other spheres. This is just um, an emergent property that's very positive about being able to face this topic. Great. Well, you know, and kind of going hand in hand a little bit with the money. I mean, one of the things that really came across in a lot of the stories that you told throughout your book were really taking into consideration the age of the patient, um, really what they have gone through, how much time they have left to live, and do we really want to begin starting surgery, say, at you know, on a 90-year-old patient that you know, has Alzheimer's or whatever the case may be to try to save maybe um, another year of their life to be here? Yeah, and you, you told... 
You also told a, a pretty personal story, too, and I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing it with our listeners about your father's passing and how that came to be. Well, um, I'd like to share a couple of stories. Actually, I'd like to talk about a before and an after story about what even brought me into this work, if that's okay. <laughs> um, my moral crisis year was um, probably about 2010. And uh, in that year, I was practicing medicine the way I'd been trained, very aggressive, kind of did not ask questions. Just if you rolled into the emergency department, if you were eight, 80 or 108 years old, I just intervened on you to save your life at all costs without asking you about your quality of life and what your choices were. And I never really had any qualms about this. And so, um, one night, about four-ish in the morning, the paramedics gave a call to me. We carry cell phones in our emergency department. And they said, we have an elderly female from a skilled nursing facility who's on the way in, and she's in shock. And so I gave a bed assignment and met them at the door. So I went in to evaluate this little lady, and she weighed about 70 pounds, and she had very advanced dementia. She actually no longer moved of her own accord. Her arms and legs were fixed and flexed. She had a feeding tube and she did not speak. I couldn't ask her wishes. She couldn't express them. We were past that phase. And right in front of me, she died. Her heart stopped. And frantically, we looked through the paperwork and it said the medical directive there was do everything to keep her alive or to bring her back. And so I honored that and I stood over this little woman and to do my job medically, I started CPR on her. And the first chest compression that I performed, I broke every rib in her little chest. And I called in the team and we started CPR as you see it on TV. It's very aggressive. Uh, and this little woman, um, I essentially just crushed her chest wall. That was the product of attempting to bring her back to her life as I saw it. And something inside of me broke as I was honestly breaking her ribs in, in this medical procedure. And I looked at my nurse and I said, what are we doing? I don't, I don't know what, what this could be about. This could even be wrong. Perhaps at the end of this long life, someone should have been in this room holding her hand saying, thank you, I love you, and goodbye. So how did we get to the point as a nation and as a healthcare system where this is the default process. And I remember thinking, well, who made this decision anyway? And, and did they think this decision was love? Did they equate medical technology with love? A lot of people in our culture do. And so it was really a confusing event for me. I was doing my job, but at the same time, I felt that in that moment, that was unethical and immoral, that medical activity. And I left the room. I had asked all these, you know, existential questions. I left the room not knowing the answer to those. But I thought, well, I've got to think about this because this is what I do. This is my career. And so um, that was sort of my, my crisis of conscience. I, I knew that that wasn't necessarily the way it probably should be, but I didn't know how it should be. So very shortly after I started doing research to write the book, It's Okay to Die, my very own paternal grandmother died. And so I did chronicle her story in the book. 
And uh, very intuitively, interestingly enough, I had finished the chapter, chapter 10, where I talk about the natural stages that occur at the end of life. And a light bulb went off for me, and I thought, oh, my very own grandmother fits this pattern, and I've not prepared her. I'm not practicing when I'm preaching since I haven't prepared her. She doesn't have an advanced directive. And so I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to, I have the day off work. I'm going to drive to her house, and, and we're going to have this conversation. I'm going to get this out of the way because suddenly I realized my grandmother fit the pattern in that. She was beginning to sleep more. She was falling. She'd had multiple hospitalizations. She had stopped doing the things that gave her joy, that made her life full. She was a gardener. Um, she cooked for people. Uh, she was the quintessential matriarch and servant for the family and the community. And these things had started to fall away from her. And so suddenly, you know, my grandmother fit the bill for the person I should be talking to. So I called her up and said, Granny, I'm going to come and see you and let's do a living will. And she said, well, that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) I got in the car to drive to her house and halfway to her home, a relative called me and said, "Uh, she's fallen and she's asking for you. And I said, what do you mean she's fallen? What did she, what happened? Um, And they said, she said, she's okay. She said, drive faster. Come on. there and um, she had had another unresponsive event but when I got there she was awake and clearly was very ill Uh, I just didn't expect to see this you know I was coming to talk about something like this not to have it happen in front of me but when I walked through the door of her house the paramedics actually were on the way as well my grandmother reached out her hand for me and she said Monica I don't want to go back to the hospital If the Lord's ready for me, I'm ready to go. I was um, shocked, you know. And I said, well, Granny, I've come to talk about what you want in this kind of situation. I didn't really intend for it to happen today, but here we are. And so we had to have a really frank discussion in front of my family and the paramedics about what she wants us to do when her heart stops and when she stopped breathing not if but when Mm -hmm. um she told us she didn't want anything we went to the hospital we were actually admitted and um the medical term for i don't want anything done to resuscitate me is do not resuscitate allow natural death so that was written as an order in her chart and about 16 hours later my grandmother died in my arms And it was one of the most beautiful and painful experiences of my entire life. And what's so different about my grandmother's death compared to that first little woman is that I got to hold my grandmother's hand and say, thank you, I love you, and goodbye. And it was a sacred and holy moment. And it felt so right and so pure and so honorable and dignified And I was grateful to even be in her presence. And so my grandmother taught me firsthand quite a few things. Number one, we need to make our own plans in advance for ourselves. We need to make our own decisions. Number two, our family and the healthcare system needs to know and honor those wishes. And number three, my grandmother taught me personally, there's a time at the end of a long life or terminal illness when it's okay to die. And then she showed me how to do it. I was really shocked. I've been practicing medicine for years, and I had never seen what I call a good death 
Um, it was graceful. And I thought, why have I not given this to my patients? And don't my patients deserve this? Everyone that I know deserves to have as good and peaceful a death filled with family and love as possible. And so we've got to ask the system to change and we've got to ask individuals to make their wishes known so that we can groom this moment for the gifts that it potentially contains. So that's that's kind of my personal journey to today. And then actually this very past year, my own father died. And um, it was really interesting. It was challenging to me. I felt like I was an expert in the field. <laughs> you know, you get in trouble when you start thinking you're an expert. <laughs> right. And, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. to be frank, in many ways, I was cocky, like, okay, well, I wrote a book about death and dying. I got this. We got this, Dad. We'll pull this off. It'll be great. As good as it can be. And in many ways, it was. But in the end, um, to be honest, my father taught me a different lesson. His suffering exceeded most cases that I had ever seen at the end of life. And um, it just took me to a new place about being with the dying and and having it so personal and the struggle about thinking that we're failing those that we love. It was just a profoundly contrasting experience compared to my grandmother. It was still sacred and holy, but by golly, it hurt. And it was rough. And my sisters uh, who helped me care for him, they're nurses, and I'm a physician. And we all felt overwhelmed, and we thought, how does a typical non-healthcare person even do this, even do this at home? Made us realize, despite really good hospice care, we probably need a whole lot more community and cultural and family resources than we even have right now to really do a good job of supporting the dying and those who are caregivers for the dying. So that's I agree my- with that. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for sharing those stories. And they were very touching to read in the book too. And, you know, one of the things that I questioned with, like you said, a good death, you know, how, how are you able to do that in an, in an emergency room? Because, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was like kind of the role of everyone in the emergency room of all the medical providers is to avoid death, to stop death from happening or, you know, trying to, do everything that you can at all cost. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And so part of the, the fact, and I'll go, I'll, we'll talk about the details of how to create a good death, but part of the fact that we actually are successful many times at creating a good death, even in the emergency department means that no other place in the healthcare system has any excuses <laughs> for not trying to pull this off. Because if, if you can create a good and peaceful and holy dying experience, even in the chaos of a trauma bay, then you can do it anywhere in the healthcare system. And so this should be, to the extent that we try so hard to give people a good life, by golly, we better give them a good death too. That is what the healthcare system's called to do, whether we accept that call or not. But some some components of um, a good death are uh, knowing that it's coming so that you can be prepared, trust in the healthcare providers. You know, the patient and family really feels needs to feel like they're supported by you and that you've got your their best interest at heart and that you're professional and doing your best. There needs to be an opportunity for emotional closure 
And, and so there are six things that I encourage that we should say to the dying and by the dying. And, and we'll talk about those, but let me kind of finish the other list too, the criteria that I, is my goal. We try to know the spiritual needs for the person and meet those needs, you know, whether that's calling in a chaplain or having um, a moment of silence. We encourage physical contact. We actually change the ambiance of the room. We turn down the lights if we can. We have, um, in my emergency department, we have uh, a little sign we place outside the room. It, it's a picture of a dove, you know, signifying peace. It has our hospital logo. <laughs> but the point is that we're trying to create a boundary, a sacred space, and people should be quiet and reverent when they're near, near this room. We actually have a palliative care protocol, which includes medicines and actions that should be taken to support the dying person if they're dying in the emergency department. And when possible, if if the person's dying is going to be slow, um, we try to involve hospice to get them either home or to an inpatient hospice facility. Um, you know, if I'm just identifying death, but it's going to be over the course of a couple of days, you know, they don't want to hang out in the ER to die. There's a better place to do this. So um, we just try to meet and support people where they are. And if we can meet those criteria and components, it can be as good as it can be. And so um, I'd like to share a story with you about how we created a good death for a patient. It includes yeah. the six things I think that should be said. So, Absolutely. oh, great. Thank you. Um, it was probably about five years ago. And so I had a gentleman come in who was 60 and he had advanced heart disease. He had already been in the hospital multiple times and had been on full life support, breathing machine, et cetera. And he came in very short of breath, couldn't speak. I had him on a, a facial mask that pressed oxygen in as he breathed and it would allow oxygen to, or carbon dioxide to come out as he breathed out. Um, but I knew that he was about to be on a ventilator, a breathing machine. And so I generally ask people's wishes now or try to find them. And his wife was there and she had an advanced directive and, and she said, we just had this conversation. He says he never wants to be on a breathing machine again. And if his heart stops, he does not want chest compressions. And they had it appropriately documented. And she was very upset because she knew he was very ill. And I held her hand and I said, I assure you, we can honor his wishes. And this will mean that we will write, do not resuscitate, allow natural death. But it doesn't mean that we're not going to do everything else aggressive. We're going to do aggressive blood pressure control. I'm going to keep him on this facial mask, which is still a um, higher level of care. And I'm going to put him on some drips to control his blood pressure and, and some other things. You know, it, Do not resuscitate does not mean do not treat. So we were still aggressive in care and supporting him and treating his symptoms. But the bottom line is we were clear that if death, was coming or arrived, we would allow it just simply to be and to support him there. So I walked back into the room to assess the gentleman and he was starting to die. He was now in respiratory failure. So he was confused and his breathing was slow and it was certainly not going to support his body's needs. And then interestingly, he was now looking up toward the corner of the room. People frequently get disengaged from their environment and they began to fixate on something we can't see, probably having a spiritual experience. 
And so I recognized all these as dying signs. I went out and asked his wife and then his very large family who had shown up. I said, please come in the room because he's showing dying signs. And I do want to support him and his decision that he's made. And I prepared them to know what they would see, the skin changes, the breathing changes. And following my own advice, I said, you know, you can trust us. You can trust me. I will take good care of him. I'll treat him like he's my father. We'll do our very best. But if he's dying and this, these are his final moments, this is a gift for you to hold his hand and say the things that need to be said. And so I coached them on the six things that I feel should be said. And those are words of forgiveness. I said, please offer forgiveness and request it. You know, please forgive me and I forgive you for the following things. Tell him thank you. Tell him I love you. Tell him it's okay to die. Give them, give the dying person permission to go. And then tell them goodbye. These are very difficult things to say. Very difficult. And oftentimes people never even say I love you until a dying loved one is on their deathbed. And so the opportunity to express these words, these sentiments can just bring in and just really pump amazing healing energy into the situation. So not knowing what to expect, I invited the family in and he had many, many adult children and they really formed a spontaneous vigil around the gentleman. They, the wife held one hand and the eldest daughter held his other hand and the family formed a circle around him. It was quite beautiful. And the eldest daughter began to speak and she said something like this. She said, Daddy, we want to thank you for working three jobs all of those years to buy us food and clothes when we were young. We want to thank you for taking care of mom all of these years. And she said, uh, thank you for um, <laughs> when I was three, I thought my teddy bear broke his arm and you actually pretended to fix it. Thank you for that. I remember that. <laughs> and she asked for forgiveness. She said, you know, forgive us for being stupid teenagers. Forgive me for doing X, Y and Z. And she said, we love you. We'll love you forever, Daddy. It's okay for you to go. Dr. Williams said it's your time. And we'll see you in paradise. And she kissed her daddy on the cheek. And a few minutes later, he died. But it was beautiful and peaceful and sacred and holy right there in the emergency department. And it was just as good as I thought it could be. And I, I hugged this eldest daughter and I said, thank you so much for sharing that moment with me and my staff and for sharing that and, and being the voice for your family. You've really shown us how to do it. And it was a, an honor and a gift for me to be present with them. And so if we can just be very conscious about this moment, these are the kinds of things that can happen. And I think that we're really missing out. We're missing out on the opportunity to have this really amazing spiritual experience, frankly, by not entering this phase consciously and creating a medical scenario that supports us and our family to have the highest experience possible. Yeah, yeah. very moving. And, and also brings in that 
component of spirituality. And I know that you're moving your career more into a new phase of um, being spiritually transformative, um, talking about more of some of those experiences. And there was a story in the book about one of the patients that was a full code and she had her daughters with her. And there was, you ended the chapter and I was like, oh no, she didn't just end the chapter that way because you had made a, a comment where the the patient was saying, you know, when, when God is ready for me, he'll call me home mm-hmm. and call her home. And, you know, that patient ended up dying and you had ended the chapter with God called her home, but I heard his voice clearly the night before. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, well, you know, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, talk more about that. You know, I mean, you just left me hanging and I was like, no, I need more. Like, what did you hear? What, you know, what was that about? So I can only imagine, you know, being an ER doc and all of the deaths that you have seen, the good, the bad, the ugly, the loving, the spiritual ones, um, the peaceful ones, that there has to be a grand spiritual movement happening inside of you. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you. Actually, I, I for, forgot about <laughs> the the possible meaning of the end of that chapter. You're exactly right. Um, I did have an awareness of that. So I, I even I was first attracted to medicine at all because of Elizabeth Kubler Ross, who was the pioneer of the hospice movement in the United States, because I felt like I was supposed to be with dying people. Um, and I thought, well, that's really morbid. And I was very clear in my 20s when I decided to go to medical school that the reason I should go to medical school is that if someone had to hear they were dying, it needed to come from me. That sounds pretty odd, but that was my intuitive just clarity that um, I had to attend the dying and sort of be the voice <laughs> of death, so to speak. Um, hopefully an optimistic voice, but um, that somehow death has called me to do this work. And so I would like to say probably that my personality or the way I'm wired is that I'm sensitive to awareness about death and dying. And I had that sensitivity from a fairly young age. I kind of intuitively knew whether, and I use the term death is with someone. I knew whether someone was going to die or not. And sometimes I knew in advance that death was going to occur, but did not know exactly who that might be. So that um, was interesting for me pre-medicine, but certainly as I embraced my call to attend the dying and to write and speak about death and dying, my sensitivities about coming death have markedly increased so that um, oftentimes I get a, a physical sensation that someone is approaching death, even if there are no really objective parameters that a a left brain physician would use to say, oh yeah, well, you know, these are dying signs. And so I might get the sensation well in advance, even months sometimes in advance of the death of someone. And so I use it proactively to try to prepare the patient and their family for that moment or to get them to thinking about advanced directives or um, to being open about you know, growth that can occur at the end of life. So sometimes I just use it simply to start the conversation. So I think that's the best use of (laughs) my skill set to date. Um, Sometimes the sensations have been uh, just more like um, a a knowing, just simply I I know that's going to happen. And sometimes they're associated with a feeling. And frankly, the way I feel death spiritually is, Death feels like the visitation of love, 
There's nothing dark about it. It feels expansive to me, um, elevating. When I'm in the room with someone and we're withdrawing ventilators, you know, for instance, if someone has a non-survivable bleed into their brain and they came in on a ventilator, but we discuss it with the family and there's no need to continue because simply they're going to be brain dead. And if we let people go very naturally in the emergency department, if that's the case. And when I'm in those rooms where we're consciously greeting death, I just feel an immense love energy uh, visit the room. And it's almost as if um, (laughs) love itself is the grim reaper. You know, this whole idea of grim, I I don't get any sensations of grim about it. And, you know, there's all kinds of research going on right now about the phenomena that occur at the end of life. And I would like to bring up the work of uh, my friend William Peters, who is the founder of the Shared Crossing Project. Uh, He was inspired by Raymond Moody, who studied near-death experiences. And he is documenting all types of phenomena that occur in and around and near death. And I really call that now the morphic field of death or the energetic field that exists at before and after the time of dying. It seems that there are heightened or more frequent extraordinary experiences that occur there. And and most of my experiences I would classify as pre-death premonitions. A lot of times patients or the person or the family members of the dying person will experience a premonition of coming death. But as a healthcare provider, I feel like that's what I experience frequently. Mr. Peters has also documented things like shared death experiences, similar to the near-death phenomena, but not only does the person dying have the the near-death experience, but some loved one has some type of a spiritual experience that where they feel like they're passing over or crossing over with the dying person themselves. So I really have gotten very clear in the last couple years in particular that I had been giving lip service to the idea that there are all these spiritual opportunities that occur at the end of life. But now I'm getting very clear on what they actually could be. And I think that if we could groom and set ourselves up and train ourselves and our families to embrace this crucible of time, that we really could download some amazing life transforming experiences that the survivors could take into their normal lives to really transform the way that they live. The, the hospice paradigm is all, already includes the spiritual aspect of us. Hospice medicine says that they, they address your physical needs, your emotional needs, your social needs, and your spiritual needs. And that's the paradigm we need in healthcare to allow these spiritual experiences, these transformative experiences to be identified, expressed, affirmed, and integrated into the system. So that's kind of where I am. <laughs> I couldn't agree more with that. And uh, to follow that conversation, I was having a conversation with a client the other day. Of course, we were talking about death. And um, we were also talking about people that the client had knew that had near-death experiences, and they worked in the medical field as well. And, um, and you know, one of the most prominent things is anyone that has experienced a near-death experience, they come back without the fear of death. And we were kind of joking and laughing and saying, you know, if this death thing is so bad, wouldn't you think that these people would become coming back even more fearful to die, but actually it's the exact opposite, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I find a lot of comfort in doing a lot of research with near death experience stories. 
because they're oh. the ones that are closest to it. And to me, it feels like, okay, there's something out there. Maybe I don't have to freak out about it, you know? And the fact that they lose their fear of death is just, you know, opposite of what we might think if it was really this horrible thing. But it turns out to be, I love what you said about death is kind of like love, you know, it's not the grim reaper, but it's the reaper of love that Everyone that comes back from a near-death experience is just in elation of how beautiful the experience was. Oh, yeah. And, and actually, because I'm really conscious of this, I, I ask my patients who've died or who die in front of me and come back, did, did anything happen? <laughs> so I'm very open to it. And I, I would like to share another story with you about a gentleman who really, um, probably the first near-death experience a patient ever shared with me, and it involved me. And it changed my life. Um, and certainly kind of solidified my belief that this is not all there is. And, and there's a whole lot that science can't explain. So I was pregnant with my third child. This was 12 years ago. And I was working the night shift in an emergency de department. And I was really pregnant, like <laughs> needing to give birth level of pregnancy. <laughs> and this man came in in cardiac arrest. He was in his 40s. He had overdosed on heroin. And I remember that I kind of had to squat like a sumo wrestler to put the breathing tube in him because my body had changed so much that I couldn't do my procedures the way I would normally. So I felt kind of weird squatting in this strange position to save his life. And we were doing CPR and, and then his heart started back. And, and so we did some specific things in the room at that time, including me saying out loud, well, I, I hope that his family can come because I do think he's brain dead. And um, maybe at least he can be an organ donor. Maybe we can salvage something good from this situation. He never showed any signs of brain life in that room. His pupils were um, fixed and did not react. He had absolutely no physical response to pain. There was nothing. We were His heart was beating. Uh, we were breathing for him. And that was it. Just, you know, minimal signs of life, just physiologic life only, but no sign of higher cognition. And so I admitted the guy to the ICU and frankly, um, you know, never thought much more about it. As harsh as that might sound, you know, we do resuscitation every day. So this becomes part of our job. We kind of let that go easily. So months passed. I had my daughter. Six months later, I was working again on the night shift and my charge nurse said, there's a man in the lobby who wants to talk to you. And I said, what do you mean there's a man that wants to talk to me? I have 30 patients to see. Uh, I said, what do you want? And she said, he said he just wants to talk to you. And I was like, um, you'll just have to tell him I'm sorry. I, you know, I have all these sick people. So she went and told the gentleman. And his response was, okay, I'll sign in and be a patient. And in, in the ER, you know, you're supposed to write what's wrong with you, why you need to be seen by a doctor. And he wrote, I have something very important to tell the doctor. That was his chief complaint for sitting in the emergency department. So it was a long, long night. He sat out there for hours and hours. And they placed him in a room and they gave me the paper chart and said, I don't know what's wrong with this guy, but he just wants to see you. He waited all night to be your patient. And I said, well, that's odd. So I walked into the room, and I remember this man um, was twirling a cane, and he had a very bright countenance about him. And he said, hey, doctor, I see that you had your baby. 
And I, a shiver went up my spine because I did not recognize the man at all. And I said, yes, sir, I, I had my baby. Do I know you? And he said, oh, you, you know me. You just don't remember me. And he said, you saved my life in that room right over there. And he leaned over and pointed through the doorway to the room where I had resuscitated him. This was that man. And he said, um, I came here to tell you my story. And so he, in exquisite detail, recounted what my charge nurse did when we rolled him and took a fentanyl patch off his back. He told me what I said aloud. He talked about how the paramedics had, he was above his body and he witnessed what the paramedics were doing to him. And I mean, the, the level of objective third person visualization of the event was stunning. And then he said, I really only came here to tell you two things. And I was, you know, enwrapped by what he had to say. And um, he said, first of all, I want to thank you for being a part of giving me a second chance on this earth because I will not waste it. And second of all, he said, I wanted you to know that there was light coming from you and your baby girl. And I thanked him. And he left. And, you know, I wish I had kept up with him or gotten his name or number because that man's comments to me, I may have saved his physical life, but he saved my spiritual life on more than one occasion by sharing that story. Wow. Amazing. (laughs) It really was. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's experiences like that, that you just can't turn back from that. And I mean, to me, I mean, hearing that, even though that didn't happen to me, I can't dispute that. You know, here's this man that's probably clinically dead on the table. You're pregnant. There's no way for him to know that you even had a baby girl crying out loud, you know, and just all of that. And then to hear that, you know, he was a drug addict and then had the second chance at life. And, you know, I think it also sounds like something spiritually healed within him. So these are just amazing stories. I love them. Absolutely. And you're right. You can't turn back. Um, you know, <laughs> these are these are spiritually transformative events. These are doorways for consciousness. And if you've had these experiences, you cannot go back to your old life. You can't go back to your old way of thinking. And for me, you can't I can't go back to my old way of practicing medicine. It changes everything. It changes yeah. everything. Well, and a couple of other things that I just wanted to mention, too, Um you know, for those of you that are fearing death, I actually found this the statistic in your book kind of comforting, where you said that really about 10% of deaths are made up by those tragic deaths, and about 90% of us are going to live a pretty long life. Yeah, so statistically, 10% of us will die unexpectedly, but, you know, a lot of people romanticize that. They want yeah. to, you know, just wake up dead or <laughs> be struck by lightning and be gone. Um, and so, you know, yeah, sure. So that may save you some physical suffering, you know, may, may save you some yes. physical suffering, but it robs you of the time to say, thank you. I love you and goodbye. And that has become such an important part of dying for me to be able to create moments for those, those types of sentiments to occur. So although we romanticize the quick out, the real gift is the long exit. <laughs> and so, um, 
you know, 90% of us will die of old age or cancer or chronic or terminal disease or organ failure. We will have the opportunity to see death coming, to make friends with it, to gather in the gifts that it offers us, and to use that time to create a legacy to leave for those that we love. And so actually, um, the things that we complain about and try so hard to treat in medicine and cure, they contain a gift for us if we look at it that way. Yes. And so that also means that we do have plenty of time, but we shouldn't waste that time to get our our stuff in order. And your website um, provides the checklist that we all need to sit down and take a look at because, you know, we can identify our healthcare proxies. We can create that living will. You can get educated about what the DNR is. And also, I've learned something new about the DNH, which is do not help. You can even go as far as asking for no helping measures, which I didn't know that one person could do either. Yeah. I mean, DNH actually typically means do not hospitalize. Um, oh, do not hospitalize. I'm sorry. Yep. Very clear on what you want and do not want. And as long as it's documented in uh, a legal healthcare directive, that's very important. You know, we should choose someone. 50% of us at some point near the end of our own lives will not be able to make our own healthcare decisions. We won't have the consciousness to do so. So the question is, who's going to be making those decisions for you? <laughs> if you right. don't choose, it's going to go to some default people in your family who you may or may not want to be involved. Plus, that's a huge decision burden to give to someone. So I urge you to make these plans in advance for yourself with a, a living will. And if you are already at a place in life where you live with a chronic or terminal illness or disease, you should get very clear to the point that um, you should have a pulsed which is physicians' orders for life-sustaining treatment, which outlines specifically what types of measures you want or don't want if the paramedic showed up to your house right now. That includes whether you want the full court press for resuscitation or if you want comfort measures only. So it contains the concept of a do not resuscitate order as well. So if you ask your healthcare provider to help you get these documents in order, um, they will be willing to do so. Since I've written the book, uh, advanced care planning has actually become funded by Medicare. That was one of my uh, my flags that I was <laughs> that we were waving and requesting that doctors be compensated for this really difficult conversation that takes a lot of time and emotional presence. And so, your healthcare provider should be willing to t have this conversation with you because. Certainly, they're being compensated for their time to do so, and it's the right thing to do so, regardless of compensation. And also, speaking of kind of compensation in another way, the other thing that I learned in your book, and you go into a little more detail, was about certain life insurance plans. If you do have a terminal illness, um, that there are sometimes there are those policies and plans where you can be paid out before you actually die to allow for those expenses to be covered. Yeah, and I'm actually not the ex subject expert on that. My ex-husband, Christian Murphy, actually wrote those chapters, and he investigated a lot in, uh, in terms of saving money with funeral industry preparation, uh, the health care plans and um, life insurance plans you have in advance. I think you can do some reverse processing on them. Some people may even want to do reverse mortgages or something like that near the end of their lives. These things should be investigated. There are opportunities that... Um, that we don't normally think about, even financially, toward the end, that we should we should um, evaluate and ask um, our representatives about. 
Yeah, and in the the later chapters too, uh, I never knew about this with funeral home arrangements, but you can actually pick out a casket. Maybe you can buy one on Amazon Prime. Who knows? But you could have it delivered. That's right. We actually did that for my father. When my grandmother died, I recall going to the funeral home. I was astonished at the prices. And I looked at the funeral director and said, it sure is expensive to die around here, don't you think? (laughs) (laughs) He was a bit nonplussed, to say the least. Um, But that was the beginning of me even questioning the funeral industrial complex. I mean, they're a business and love them, got friends who do the work, but they capitalize on grief. And, um, you know, you're, you're an emotionally distraught customer who just says yes. Most people, you know, many people do have um, uh, burial policies that cover a lot of the costs. Lots of people are now opting for cremation just for simplicity. We're moving toward opportunities for green burials um, and uh, natural burials and alternative burials. And so I think that as we kind of deconstruct death and dying and, and how medicine manages it, we also have the opportunity to deconstruct what's been done the last 40, 50, 60 years with regards to uh, funeral and burial practices as well. There are lots of cheaper methods to do it. And frankly, we bought my dad's casket online and then we decorated it. My dad was a was a race car driver. And so we got a bright red casket that matched his car and put his racing stickers on it. (laughs) That's awesome. And the funeral um, parlors have to accept that and they don't charge you an extra fee because of that. Correct. That's right. I would recommend that you don't tell them you're going to buy it till you've signed all the other paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Good to know. Well, Dr. Williams, this has been awesome. Um, I have, I've loved our, our conversation. Um, there's still like so much more to talk about and I'm so sad that our time is coming to an end, but, um, we might actually get a chance to see you at the afterlife conference. I understand that you're going to be hosting a breakout session for the 2018 afterlife conference. Yes. Thank you. And I'd love to see you there and meet you there. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the book. It's okay to die, but I'm also going to really kind of delve into these spiritually transformative experiences that I've had and how uh, maybe we can groom healthcare or organize ourselves in healthcare to support these for the patients, families, and the community and other healthcare providers who I know are having these experiences. We just don't have a context for describing them and discussing them. Great. So I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. And again, the book is It's Okay to Die by Dr. Monica Williams. And if you decide not to purchase the book, which I highly recommend, um, I want you to go and check out her website, okaytodie.com. And you can click on the first button there, your death. And there's a planning for your own death, the preparation checklist. Um, There's also some checklists for the death of another. So if you've never gone through the death process before, uh, she does a really great job of preparing you for that and giving you the checklist for that as well. There's great resources on there. I hope everyone that has listened has really thought twice about their death. And if you haven't already filled out your living will or assigned a healthcare proxy, that those are the first two things that you do after listening to this podcast. So thanks again, Monica. It was great to meet you. Thank you. Perfect, April. And that was the perfect way to end. 
If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!